Chapter Twenty Five The Campaign The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. Du Bois. Recorded by A. J. Hilton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Easterly sat in Mrs. Vanderpool's apartments in the New Willard, Washington, drinking tea. His hostess was saying rather carelessly, Do you know Mr. Vanderpool has developed a quite unaccountable liking for the idea of being ambassador to France? Dear me, mildly exclaimed Mr. Easterly, helping himself liberally to cakes. I do hope the thing can be managed, but... What are the difficulties? Mrs. Vanderpool interrupted. Well, first and foremost, the difficulty of electing our man. I thought that a foregone conclusion. It was, but do you know that we're encountering opposition from the most unexpected sauce? The lady was receptive, and the speaker concluded, The Negroes. The Negroes? Yes. There are 500,000 or more black voters in pivotal northern states, you know, and they're in revolt. In a close election, the Negroes of New York, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois choose the president. What's the matter? Well, business interests have driven our party to make friends with the South. The South has disenfranchised Negroes and lynched a few. The darkies say we've deserted them. <laughs> Mrs. Vanderpool laughed. What extraordinary penetration, she cried. At any rate, said Mr. Easterly dryly, Mr. Vanderpool's first step toward Paris lies in getting the northern Negroes to vote the Republican ticket. After that, the way is clear. Mrs. Vanderpool mused. I don't suppose you know anyone who is acquainted with any number of these northern darkies, continued Mr. Easterly. Not on my calling list, said Mrs. Vanderpool, and then she added more thoughtfully, There's a young clerk in the Treasury Department named Alwyn who has brains. He's just from the South, and I happened to read of him this morning. Mr. Easterly read an account of the speech at the Bethel Literary. We'll look this young man up, he decided. He may help. Of course, Mrs. Vanderpool will probably win. We can buy these Negroes off with a little money and a few small offices. Then, if you'll use your influence for the part of the Southerners, I can confidently predict from four to eight years sojourn in Paris. Mrs. Vanderpool smiled and called her maid as Mr. Easterly went. Zora! She had to call twice, for Zora, with widened eyes, was reading the Washington Post. Meantime, in the office of Senator Smith, toward which Mr. Easterly was making his way, several members of the National Republican Campaign Committee had been closeted the day before. Now about the niggers, the chairman had asked, how much more boodle do they want? That's what's bothering us, announced a member. It isn't the boodle crowd that's hollering, but a new set, and I don't understand them. I don't know what they represent nor just how influential they are. What can I do to help you? asked Senator Smith. This. You are here in Washington with these Negro officeholders at your back. Find out for us just what this revolt is, how far it goes, and what good men we can get to swing the darkies into line, see? Very good, the senator acquiesced. He called in a spectacled man with bushy eyebrows and a sleepy look. I want you to work the Negro political situation, directed the senator, and bring me all the data you can get. Personally, I'm at sea. I don't understand the Negro of today at all. He puzzles me. 
He doesn't fit any of my categories, and I suspect that I don't fit his. See what you can find out. The man went out, and the senator turned to his desk, then paused and smiled. One day, not long since, he had met a colored person who personified his perplexity concerning Negroes. She was a lady, yet she was black, that is, brown. She was educated, even cultured, yet she taught Negroes. She was quiet, astute, quick, and diplomatic. Everything, in fact, that Negroes were not supposed to be. And yet she was a Negro. She had given him valuable information which he had sought in vain elsewhere, and the event proved it correct. Suppose he asked Caroline Wynne to help him in this case. It would certainly do no harm, and it might elect a Republican president. He wrote a short letter with his own hand and sent it to post. Miss Wynne read the letter after Alwyn's departure with a distinct thrill which was something of a luxury for her. Evidently she was coming to her kingdom. The Republican boss was turning to her for confidential information. What do the colored people want, and who can best influence them in this campaign? She curled up on the ottoman and considered. The first part of the query did not bother her. Whatever they want, they won't get, she said decisively. But as to the man or men who could influence them to believe that they were getting or about to get what they wanted, there was a question. One by one she considered the men she knew and, by a process of elimination, finally arrived at Bless Alwyn. Why not take this young man in hand and make a Negro leader of him, a protagonist of ten millions? It would not be unpleasant, but could she do it? Would he be amenable to her training and become worldly wise? She flattered herself that he would, and yet there was a certain steadfast look in the depths of his eyes that might prove to be sheer stubbornness. At any rate, who was better? There was a fellow, Stillings, whom Alwyn had introduced and whom she had heard of. Now he was a politician, but nothing else. She dismissed him. Of course, there was the older set of office-holders and rounders, but she was determined to pick a new man. He was worth trying, at any rate. She knew none other with the same build, the brains, the gifts, the adorable youth. Very good. She wrote two letters, and then curled up to her novel and candy. Next day, Senator Smith held Miss Wynne's letter unopened in his hand when Mr. Easterly entered. They talked of the campaign and various matters until at last Easterly said, "'Say, there's a Negro clerk at the Treasury named Alwyn. I know him. I had him appointed. Good. He may help us. Have you seen this?' The senator read the clipping. "'I hadn't noticed it. But here's my agent.' The spectacled man entered with a mass of documents. He had papers, posters, programs, and letters. The situation is this, he said. A small group of educated Negroes are trying to induce the rest to punish the Republican Party for not protecting them. These men are not politicians nor popular leaders, but they have influence and are using it. The old-styled Negro politicians are no match for them and the crowd of office-holders are rather bewildered. Strong measures are needed. Educated men of earnestness and ability might stem the tide, and I believe I know one such man. He spoke at a big meeting last night at the Metropolitan Church. His name is Alwyn. Senator Smith listened as he opened the letter from Caroline Wynne. Then he started. Well, he ejaculated, looking quickly up at Easterly. This is positively uncanny. From three separate sources, the name of Alwyn pops up. Looks like a mascot. 
Call up the treasury. Let's have him up when the subcommittee meets tomorrow. Bless Alwyn hurried up to Senator Smith's office hoping to hear something about the school, perhaps even about, but he stopped with a sigh and sat down in the anteroom. He was kept waiting for a few moments while Senator Smith, the chairman, and one other member of the subcommittee had a word. Now, I don't know the young man, mind you, said the senator, but he strongly recommended. What shall we offer him? asked the chairman. Try him at twenty-five dollars a speech. If he balks, raise to fifty dollars, but no more. They summoned the young man. The chairman produced cigars. I, I don't smoke, said Bless apologetically. Well, we haven't anything to drink, said the chairman. But Senator Smith broke in, taking up at once the paramount interest. Mr. Alwyn, as you know, the Democrats are making an effort to get the Negro vote in this campaign. Now I know the disadvantages and wrongs which black men in this land are suffering. I believe the Republicans ought to do more to defend them, and I am satisfied they will. But I doubt if the way to get Negro rights is to vote for those who took them away. I agree with you perfectly, said Bless. I understand you do, and that you made an unusually fine speech on the subject the other night. Thank you, sir. This was a good deal more than Bless had expected, and he was embarrassed. Well, now, we think you're just the man to take the stump during September and October and convince the colored people of their real interests. I, I doubt if I could, sir. I'm not a speaker. In fact, that was my first public speech. <laughs> so much the better. Are you willing to try? Why, yes, sir. But I could hardly afford to give up my position. We'll arrange for a leave of absence. Then I'll try, sir. What would you expect as pay? I suppose my salary would stop? I mean, in addition to that. Oh, nothing, sir. I'd be glad to do the work. The chairman nearly choked. Sitting back, he eyed the young man. Either they were dealing with a fool or else a very astute politician. If the former, how far could they trust him? If the latter, what was his game? Of course, there'll be considerable traveling, the chairman ventured, looking reflectively out of the window. Yes, sir, I suppose so. We might pay the railroad fare. Thank you, sir. When shall I begin? The chairman consulted his calendar. Suppose you hold yourself in readiness for one week from today. All right, and bless Rose. Good day, gentlemen. But the chairman was still puzzled. Now what's his game? he asked helplessly. He may be honest, offered Senator Smith, contemplating the door almost wistfully. The campaign progressed. The National Republican Committee said little about the Negro revolt and affected to ignore it. The papers were silent. Underneath this calm, however, the activity was redoubled. The prominent Negroes were carefully catalogued, written to, and put under personal influence. The Negro papers were quietly subsidized and they began to ridicule and reproach the new leaders. As the fall progressed, mass meetings were held in Washington and the small towns. Larger and larger ones were projected, and more and more Alwyn was pushed to the front. He was developing into a most effective speaker. He had the voice, the presence, the ideas, and above all, he was intensely in earnest. There were other colored orators with voice, presence, and eloquence, but their people knew their record and discounted them. Alwyn was new, clear, and sincere, and the black folk hung on his words. 
large and larger crowds greeted him until he was the central figure in a half-dozen great Negro mass meetings in the chief cities of the country, culminating in New York the night before the election. Perhaps the secret newspaper work, the personal advice of employers and friends, and the liberal distribution of cash would have delivered a large part of the Negro vote to the Republican candidate, perhaps. But there was a doubt. With the work of Alwyn, however, all doubt disappeared, and there was little reason for denying that the new president walked into the White House through the instrumentality of an unknown Georgia Negro, little past his majority. This is what Senator Smith said to Mr. Easterly, what Miss Wynne said to herself, and it was what Mrs. Vanderpool remarked to Zora, as Zora was combing her hair on the Wednesday after the election. Zora murmured an indistinct response, as already something of the beauty of the world had found question and answer in her soul, and as she began to realize how the world had waxed old in thought and stature, so now in their last days a sense of the power of men— as set over against the immensity and force of their surroundings became real to her she had begun to read of the lives and doing of those called great and in her mind a plan was forming she saw herself standing dim within the shadows directing the growing power of a man a man who would be great as the world counted greatness rich high in position powerful wonderful because his face was black he would never see her, never know how she worked and planned, save perhaps at last in that supreme moment as she passed, her soul would cry to his, redeemed, and he would understand. All this she was thinking and weaving, not clearly and definitely, but in great blurred clouds of thought of things, as she said slowly, he should have a great position for this. Why, certainly, Mrs. Vanderpool agreed, and then curiously, what zora considered negroes she said have been registers of the treasury and recorders of deeds here in washington and douglas was marshal but i won't bless she paused and started again those are not great enough for mr alwyn he should have an office so important that negroes would not think of leaving their party again mrs vanderpool took pains to repeat zora's words to mr easterly he considered the matter in one sense is good advice he admitted but there's the south to reckon with i'll thank it over and speak to the president oh yes i'm going to mention france at the same time mrs vanderpool smiled and leaned back in her carriage she noted with considerable interest the young colored woman who was watching her from the sidewalk a brown well-appearing young woman of notable self-possession caroline wynne scrutinized mrs vanderpool because she had been speaking with mr easterly and mr easterly was a figure of political importance that very morning miss wynne had telegraphed bless alwyn alwyn arrived at washington just as the morning papers heralded the sweeping republican victory all about he met new deference and new friends strangers greeted him familiarly on the street sam stillings became his shadow and when he reported for work his chief and fellow clerks took unusual interest in him have you seen senator smith yet miss wynne asked after a few words of congratulation no what for what for she answered go to him to-day don't fail i shall be at home at eight to-night it seemed to bless an exceedingly silly thing to do calling on a busy man with no errand but he went he decided that he would just thank the senator for his interest and get out 
or if the senator was busy he would merely send in his card evidently the senator was busy for his waiting-room was full bless handed the card to the secretary with a word of apology but the secretary detained him uh mr alwyn he said affably glad to see you the senator will want to see you i know wait just a minute and soon bless was shaking senator smith's hand well mr alwyn said the senator heartily you delivered the goods thank you sir i, I tried to senator smith thoughtfully looked him over and drew out the letters your friends mr alwyn he said adjusting his glasses have a rather high opinion of you here now is stillings who helped on the campaign he suggests an eighteen hundred dollar clerkship for you the senator glanced up keenly and omitted to state what stillings suggested for himself alwyn was visibly grateful as well as surprised i-i hoped he began hesitatingly that perhaps i might get a promotion but i had not thought of a first-class clerkship hmm. senator smith leaned back and twiddled his thumb staring at alwyn until the hot blood darkened his cheeks then bless sat up and stared politely but steadily back the senator's eyes dropped and he put out his hand for the second note now your friend miss wynne alwyn started is even more ambitious he handed her letter to the young man and pointed out the words of course senator bless read we expect mr alwyn to be the next register of the treasury bless looked up in amazement but the senator reached for a third letter the room was very still at last he found it this he announced quietly is from a man of great power and influence who has the ear of the new president he smoothed out the letter paused briefly then read aloud it has been suggested to me by the senator did not read the name if he had mrs vanderpool would have meant little to alwyn it has been suggested to me by blank that the future allegiance of the negro vote to the republican party might be insured by giving to some prominent negro a high political position for instance treasurer of the united states salary six thousand dollars interpolated senator smith and that alwyn would be a popular and safe appointment for that position the senator did not read the concluding sentence which ran think this over we can't touch political conditions in the south perhaps this sop will do for a long time alwyn sat motionless while the senator said nothing then the young man rose unsteadily i don't think i quite grasp all this he said as he shook hands i'll think it over and he went out when caroline wynne heard of that extraordinary conversation her amazement knew no bounds yet alwyn ventured to voice doubts i'm not fitted for either of those high offices there are many others who deserve more and i don't somehow like the idea of seeming to have worked hard in the campaign simply for money or fortune you see i talked against that very thing miss wynne's eyes widened well what else she began and then changed mr alwyn the line between virtue and foolishness is dim and wavering and i should hate to see you lost in that marshy borderland by a streak of extraordinary luck you have gained political leadership of negroes in america here's your chance to lead your people and here you stand blinking and hesitating be a man alwyn straightened up and felt his doubts going the evening passed very pleasantly i'm going to have a little dinner for you said miss wynne finally and alwyn grew hot with pleasure he turned to her suddenly and said why 
I'm rather black. She expressed no surprise, but said reflectively, You are dark, and I've been given to understand that Miss Wynne and her set rather, well, prefer the lighter shades of colored folk. Miss Wynne <laughs> laughed lightly. My parents did, she said simply. No dark man ever entered their house. They were simply copying the white world. Now I, as a matter of aesthetic beauty, prefer your brown velvet color to a jaundiced yellow or even an uncertain cream, but the world doesn't. The world? Yes, the world, and especially America. One may be Chinese, Spaniard, even Indian, anything white or dirty white in this land, and demand decent treatment, but to be Negro or darkening toward it unmistakably means perpetual handicap and crucifixion. Why not, then, admit that you draw the color line? Because I don't. But the world does. I am not prejudiced as my parents were, but I am foresighted. Indeed, it is a deep ethical query, is it not? How far one has the right to bear black children to the world in the land of the free and the home of the brave? Is it fair to the children? Yes, it is, he cried vehemently. The more to take up the fight, the surer the victory. She laughed at his earnestness. <laughs> you are refreshing, she said. Well, we'll dine next Tuesday, and we'll have the cream of our world to meet you. He knew that this was a great triumph. It flattered his vanity. After all, he was entering this higher, dark world whose existence had piqued and puzzled him so long. He glanced at Miss Wynne beside him there in the dimly lighted parlor. She looked so aloof and unapproachable, so handsome and so elegant. He thought how she would complete a house such a home as his prospective four or six thousand dollars a year could easily purchase. She saw him surveying her, and she smiled at him. I find but one fault with you, she said. He stammered for a pretty speech, but did not find it before she continued. Yes, you are so delightfully primitive. You will not use the world as it is, but insist on acting as if it were something else. I'm not sure I understand. Well, there is the wife of my judge— she is a fact in my world. In yours, she is a problem to be stated, straightened, and solved. If she had come to you, as she did to me yesterday, with her theory that all Southern Negroes needed was to learn how to make good servants and lay brick, I should have shown her, Bless tried to interject, nothing of the sort. You would have tried to show her and would have failed miserably. She hasn't learned anything in twenty years." But surely you didn't join her in advocating that ten million people be menials. Oh, no, I simply listened. Well, there's no harm in that. I believe in silence at times. Ah, but I did not listen like a log, but positively and eloquently, with a nod, a half-formed word, a comment begun, which she finished. Bless frowned. As a result, continued Miss Wynne, I have a check for five hundred dollars to finish our cooking school and buy a cast of Minerva for the assembly room. More than that, I have now a wealthy friend. She thinks me an unusually clever person who, by a process of thought not unlike her own, has arrived at very similar conclusions. But, but, objected Bless, if the time spent cajoling fools were used in convincing the honest and upright, think how much we would gain. Very little. The honest and upright are a sad minority. Most of these white folk, believe me, boy, she said caressingly, are fools and knaves. 
They don't want truth or progress. They want to keep niggers down. I don't believe it. There are scores, thousands, perhaps millions such, I admit. But the average American loves justice and right. And he is the one to whom I appeal with frankness and truth. Great heavens, don't you love to be frank and open? She narrowed her eyelids. Yes, yeah, sometimes I do. Once I was. But it's a luxury few of us Negroes can afford. Then, too, I insist that it's jolly to fool them. Don't you hate the deception? She chuckled and put her head to one side. <laughs> At first I did. But do you know now I believe I prefer it? He looked so horrified that she burst out laughing. He laughed, too. She was a puzzle to him. He kept thinking what a mistress of a mansion she would make. Why do you say these things? He asked suddenly. Because I want you to do well here in Washington. General philanthropy? No, special. Her eyes were bright with meaning. Then you care? For me? Yes. He bent forward and cast the die. Enough to marry me? She answered very calmly and certainly, yes. He leaned toward her, and then between him and her lips a dark and shadowy face. Two great storm-swept eyes looked into his out of a world of infinite pain, and he dropped his head in hesitation and shame, and kissed her hand. Miss Wynne thought him delightfully bashful. End of chapter 25